All right, let's go. First Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, they'll have the uh, text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, we also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks underneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would actually invite you to take that hardback one home. Uh, we love God's Word. We believe that He uses it for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things is that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. We want you to know God. We want everything in and around and about your life to be shaped by that knowing of Him. And so uh, we like putting Bibles in people's hands and coming up with creative ways for people to be reading them. And so if you don't have one, take that one. Uh, so uh, we have made it now to what is essentially the 20th week. Uh, we've had a bunch of breaks in there, but the 20th week of our effort to walk through the letter that's called 1 Corinthians. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul uh, to a very young church in the Greek city of Corinth. And uh, Paul had helped to start the church there. Uh, he was intimately aware of what was going on in that city. Uh, he had since moved away from there to start other churches in other locations. Uh, but there are a number of things that lead us to believe that Paul kind of had a special place in his heart for this church. Uh, not only does he seem to engage them more often than he engages other churches, uh, but like he puts up with a bunch of mess from them. And so you got to love somebody to continue engaging the way that Paul engaged with the Corinthians. And so uh, he, he understood the town incredibly well. He understood the people in the town incredibly well. Uh, and Corinth was, I mean, they, it, it's pretty clear to say they, they were kind of a train wreck, right? Um, Corinth was an incredibly vibrant town. There was a lot of cash flowing through town. There was a lot of talent flowing through town. And the church was no different, all right? And so all that cash and all that talent was in the church as well. And so no matter what culture you want to talk about, whether it's Corinth or ours or a thousand points in between, whenever, uh, whenever you got a lot of cash and a lot of talent that aren't closely tied to, to character, humility, and wisdom, well, the end result is always going to be a bad thing. It's always going to end up in pride every time. And the church was no different, right? The same problems that they had in the city, the larger context of the city they had in the smaller context of the church. And so the trajectory that Paul takes in addressing this young church that he loves dearly, this really smart, really talented, but also really prideful young church, his trajectory is to repeatedly bring them back to this idea that God's kingdom is intentionally upside down from all of the kingdoms that are competing in this world. God's kingdom values different things. It, it, it celebrates and exalts, builds up, and puts on a pedestal different things. In fact, we're explicitly told earlier in this letter that God has intentionally built out his kingdom to be a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. He's built out this kingdom on purpose. And if you're thinking to yourself, well, that, I mean, God's got to be smarter than that, right? Like, that can't be right. Well, just remember, the very centerpiece of this otherworldly kingdom is a bloody Savior hanging on a cross, laying down his own life to save not his friends, but his enemies. That's, that's the sun that this kingdom orbits around. See, every kingdom, and you start pointing them off, Every kingdom that's ever been attempted to be established has somebody in the middle of it trying desperately to become a king, all right? But last time I checked, there aren't a whole lot of sacrificial saviors trying to copycat Jesus. Those are different things. Nobody's running the Jesus route. God's kingdom is upside down and every possible way. So much so that, that for those of us who are being reborn into it, it's, it's honestly sometimes hard to embrace right? Have you discovered these moments yet? It's sometimes a little hard to swallow and a little hard to latch on to and, and make a gigantic celebration out of. 
I don't know if you've discovered this about your own life, but it's true for mine. There are plenty of moments where the culture and worldview that I was born into comes into direct conflict with the culture and worldview that I'm being reborn into. Over and over again, actually. And so in those moments, how, how do we begin to make sense of this stuff, right? There's a decision that we got to make. Do we, do we, when the path diverges, we got to choose path A or path B. And so how do we make that decision with confidence? Well, what we trust, I think, I think we trust that the kingdom that we inherited is less valuable and maybe, maybe less eternal than the one that God is building, Right? And to help us make that decision with confidence, there's a question that we've been disciplining ourselves to ask, right? Whenever we find ourselves in these moments of awkward dissonance, when we're not sure if God's kingdom is actually worth the investment, the question that we're training ourselves to ask is really, really simple. Is it beautiful? Is, it, is God's kingdom good? Is it true? Does it have eternal value in an otherwise fading world? And if the answers to those questions are yes, well, then, then maybe God is trustworthy right? Even when his plan doesn't make any sense to us yet. And maybe he's both good and completely worthy of our following him even when we don't get it yet. So we made it to chapter 12 now. Put in a lot of work to get to this point, but in, but in chapter 11, Paul begins describing uh, an others-focused posture as it applies to the gathering of the church, all right? Uh, he begins fleshing out what it looks like for us to, to walk in Christian community and lay down our personal agendas and instead go looking for ways to serve. And, and so he starts by, in the first part of chapter 11, applying that posture to gender roles within the church, and, and then he applied it last week, we saw, to the practice of the Lord's Supper, and now in chapter 12, we're going to start getting into some of the juicy stuff, all right? How many of y'all are waiting for the, for the spiritual gift sermon? Here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 1. It says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord, excuse me, except in the Holy Spirit. Okay, so Paul begins to shift his attention to, to what the Corinthians really wanted to talk about. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts, right? Uh, if you don't remember, uh, we've been saying for the last several months that, that despite its name, 1 Corinthians, we're very certain that with this conversation, this letter is playing out in the middle of a much longer dialogue, back and forth dialogue between Paul and this church. We know that he's written at least one letter by this point, and we think that they've written at least one letter by this point. And so there's already been some, some back and forth. And so Paul turns his attention here to something that we think that they had specifically asked him about in their letter to him. He says, I want to talk about spiritual gifts. They got a lot of questions. You got a lot of questions? Corinth had a lot of questions. Spiritual gifts is a term that, well, if you don't have much of a church background, it might be a little confusing to you, right? Like that's, that's, that's a weird thing. There are, there are a number of places in the New Testament, especially in the first Corinthians here. We're going to talk about it for several weeks in a row, but several places in the New Testament where God tells us that God gives special abilities to his people. Things like teaching and discernment, gifts of service and evangelism. And, and these gifts, they, they don't seem just like mere talents and aptitudes. They seem to go beyond 
those things. These seem to be Holy Spirit-empowered abilities. Stuff that you can only really explain if, by pointing to God and saying, God did something. Look what God did. God working powerfully through a person in a specific way. And some of these gifts, some of these gifts seem kind of normal. Some of these gifts we would describe as miraculous. Gifts of healing and prophecy, speaking in tongues. And we're going to talk about them a lot more over the next couple of months, but from the evidence we have available, it seems like the church in Corinth was especially blessed in these things. It seems like they were walking around with a little more gifting than, than everybody else. God seems to have equipped them at a higher level than he seems to have equipped other New Testament churches in their context. And so, and so this incredibly young church, they had a lot of questions, man, and, and they had a lot of examples of misuse. There was a lot of opportunity for them to get it very, very wrong. I mean, I mean, based on everything else we know about the Church of Corinth, like anybody else thinking that they were making a mess out of this stuff? Anybody, anybody confident that the Church of Corinth was just knocking this out of the park? Or maybe the core level problems that they had fleshed themselves out in this as well? We're going with option B. Sounds like a good option. Yeah, they were quick to... They were quick to celebrate the wrong things and exalt the wrong things. They were quick to use their gifts for what we're going to see here is incredibly selfish motives. It was a train wreck, and just like everything else going on in Corinth. And so we think that in their letter to Paul, they specifically asked about spiritual gifts. And now Paul, <laughs> 11 chapters in now, has finally gotten to the point where he can answer their direct question. He says, when you were pagans... In other words, before you were a follower of Jesus, when you were following other gods, he said you were led away to mute idols, led astray. Back when we uh, spent about a month or so talking about meat that had been sacrificed to statues of false gods, we said that, that there was a dual reality that we needed to see about these idols that they were worshiping. For one, there is nothing, they're nothing more than a lifeless statue. They don't eat, they don't drink, they don't sleep, and they certainly don't talk back when you try to pray to them. They're mute. Paul references back to a not-so-long-ago history for many of the, the followers of Jesus, many of the believers here in this Corinthian church. And So however it played out that you were led astray, if you're a follower of Jesus, he says, those days are gone. That's, that's a once-was reality for you. Those days are gone. But there was a second reality about those lifeless idols that we pointed to all those months ago. And it's that lifeless does not mean the same thing as spiritually neutral. They may be lifeless, but they're not spiritually neutral. In chapter 10, we discovered that the fellowship meal that was always happening around these mute idol statues was still a participation in the worship and the celebration of what is demonic. That's what Paul argues in chapter 10. That it wasn't just a meal, that there was a spiritual reality that was going on in that moment. And when they participated in that meal, they were a part of that celebration of the spiritual. And I get it, that's a really, really hard thing for our 21st century Western ears to hear. Right? But it would have made immediate sense, both to Paul's audience and then to, to any non-Western audience today. See, we live in a culture that even when people happen to be theists, even when they happen to believe in a God, they still tend to immediately dismiss spiritual realities or any kind of spiritual explanation for something. But there's something going on here that goes much 
much deeper than mere mental assent. There's something much deeper here than just assent. And and Paul says that, that they had been led astray by these mute idols, that they were deceived, that they were conned into something. They followed and bought into something that they didn't understand at the time. And so Paul says that, hey, hey, you may not have understood that, but listen, I want you to understand this. Don't get this one confused. I want you to understand this. No one, no one who is truly speaking in the Spirit can ever say Jesus is accursed, meaning that he is cut off from the Lord. And neither can someone say Jesus is Lord without being indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Paul sets up a test here to help the Corinthians understand what it is they're looking at. They got, they got all these things going on around them in their culture. And he gives them something to latch onto, some criteria, foothold, if you want to call it that, to make sense of some things. See, while our culture struggles to see and acknowledge spiritual realities, the Corinthian culture often struggled to discern spiritual realities. And so they just kind of wholesale bought everything that popped up. They were being flooded with these hard-to-explain spiritual gifts, many of them which were quite miraculous, right? Speaking in tongues, prophecy, those kinds of things. Like, like those are things are hard to explain. So how in the world do you begin to parse between the good and the not good? How in the world do you, be, do you begin to separate out between what is clearly from God and what probably isn't from God? And the answer, the answer is that the good stuff is what affirms what has already been revealed what affirms what has already been revealed. See, it doesn't matter how impressive something appears to be. It doesn't matter how miraculous something appears to be on the surface. If someone is going around saying Jesus is a curse, well, that's not true. The Bible tells us otherwise. We know it's false. The Bible refutes that claim. They're not from God. And the flip side is also true. It doesn't matter that there are more impressive things out on the horizon. It doesn't matter that we could probably turn our head this way and find something even more amazing, right? Uh, the, the things that are from God are the things that leave everyone celebrating the Lordship of Christ rather than man doing some kind of work. But discernment doesn't end there. There's a second layer to this that we can get down into. And so in verse 4, Paul says this. It says, Now there are, are a variety of gifts, But the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities. It is the same God who empowers uh, them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Okay, so pop quiz. What is the purpose of the spiritual gifts? The common good, right? It's a gift to build up the church. The church. There's no personal agenda in here. It's given as a corporate gift for a corporate reality. Paul says that there are a variety of gifts and a variety of service and a variety of activities, but they are all given by God. They've got one source, God, and he gave them for a purpose for the good of the church. As a side note, this is one of the places where we pull our Trinitarian theology from. We see all three persons of the Trinity named here in the matter of just two verses, all referred to as deity. In Paul's writings, 
in pretty much the rest of the New Testament. Jesus is the one that's referred to as Lord, and God the Father is usually referred to simply as God. And so, and so we see all three of them mentioned here, and so just keep that in your back pocket for the next time you need it and somebody challenges you on that. No, look, two verses, all of them right there. But Paul says that the Spirit has collectively given us a variety of manifestations for the common good. Which means that each and every one of these gifts, inside out, upside down, all of them on the list, are both designed and then given so that they will cooperate with and work alongside of each other. None of them stands as a singular need while the others can go away. None of them is to to be held up as precious while the others don't matter. But they are all given to a collective body for the good of the collective body. So trying to elevate one gift above another for the sake of self-exaltation, well, it kind of misses the point, doesn't it? All right, show of hands. How many of y'all think the Corinthians modeled a selflessness when it comes to the spiritual gifts? In fact, they pretty quickly developed a hierarchy of gifts a value system they, that tried to, to separate out those with more special-seeming gifts who, in their mind, had, had earned privileges and authority from God that the others didn't have, right? And as you can imagine, the more miraculous someone's gift seemed to be, the more that allowed them to press their weight upon things, the more clout that they tried to walk around with, as another side note, that kind of culture in a church, it will always, always end up turning into an environment where people attempt to fake these gifts so that they can be held in esteem by others. Always. And that's exactly what we see playing out in Corinth. In a culture that was fully saturated by personal agendas and creative attempts to try to get all the eyes on them, everybody was playing that game. You were either a have or you were a have not in Corinth. But those gifts were never given to build up the self. And neither were they something that you could simply claim based on who you wanted to be. They're given by the Spirit at the discretion of the Spirit, for the purpose of the Spirit. And His purpose, we're told, is the common good of the church. So now that we see their purpose, well, how do we begin to make sense of them individually? We have their collective identity, but I think it's probably good and right to maybe start understanding some of these things. And so Paul begins fleshing that out in verse 8. For the one... For the one is given, or for two one, excuse me, is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. We'll, we'll call time out there and kind of walk through these one by one. All right, so there's some debate here over what exactly Paul means by utterances of wisdom and utterances of knowledge. Some, honestly, see it as being a part of that larger category of miraculous gifts, things that you know, just kind of happen, all right? Um, a supernatural understanding of a moment, something that's suddenly kind of brought to mind that wouldn't have been known without the Spirit revealing that something, which sounds really cool and all, but um, as we're going to learn later, Paul used a different term to talk about that reality. And so it's, he calls it prophecy later. 
And um, so it's going to come up in a couple of verses. And so while it's not clear here, he's likely using these two ideas, utterance of knowledge, utterance of wisdom. He's likely using it in ter- those terms in, in a different way. Um, it's probably, honestly, I think just more natural ability to understand a situation based off of reason and gained experience. Doesn't mean that the spirit's not working powerfully in that. That would that would, but it would actually be incredibly more consistent with this idea of there not being multiple classes of spiritual gifts. So God has equipped some in this way, and He's equipped others in that way. And so while the more miraculous gifts do exist, the Spirit also gives special levels of common sense and understanding to others. Right? And like, don't we don't we honestly kind of need some of that in the church? Don't don't we need some wisdom and understanding beyond ourselves? I think so. So both are needed in the church, and I think both should be celebrated in the church. So God gives some the ability to look at a situation and then speak to that situation with incredible understanding and wisdom, and to, and to do that at levels that the rest of the church just goes, man, I'm glad so-and-so is here to speak to that. I'm glad God has equipped them to, to have insight into this thing. But Paul keeps going in verse 9. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. Okay, so here we see what would often be described as a seemingly normal gift, faith. And, but we see it paired with what we would clearly describe as a miraculous gift, right? Healing. Some are given this extra gift, uh, this extra measure, I guess you could say, of faith. And, and so in case that's confusing for you, he's not talking about saving faith here. What he's talking about is that some people, there's just some people in the church that, that standing faithful and standing tall, trusting in the Lord and what he is doing, even in the face of terrible circumstances, it just comes a little more naturally for them, right? Haven't you been around people like that? Where everybody else is falling away going, I'm not sure about this. You got this one person, now God's got this. And what happens in that moment? Everybody sees that guy, and their faith is built up too, right? They stand tall and stare down hardship, maybe even persecution, and it inspires others to stand tall and face it too. It inspires others to trust deeply in the Lord and what he is doing. God uses them to encourage and to build up the faith of other people in the church. And so the rest of the church is strengthened by the gift of faith that they're walking around with. Seems like it would be smart to ask God to, ask, to bring us some more folks like that, right? Don't we desperately need a lot of them too? But then Paul couples this seemingly normal but incredibly important gift of faith with the more miraculous and, I guess, less common gift of healing. And it's a gift that we see play out, exercise all throughout the book of Acts, right? Like every other page, you're seeing somebody miraculously healed from some affliction or another. A, a million-dollar question, though, is, does, does God still give out the gift of healing today? I don't know. What do you think? A lot of really, really smart Jesus-loving, Bible-loving people argue that the answer is no. And for really good reasons, actually. For starters, we don't exactly see Holy Spirit-empowered healers hanging out by the cancer ward down at the local hospital. Right? Like, somebody's walking around with that skill set in their pocket and just sitting on it. We probably have a giant disobedience problem on our hands. 
Let's get to work. Let's use the thing that God gave you. Got some good things we can go do. Oh, but you, you don't understand. It's not an all-the-time thing. Well, sure, but, but I mean, we can get some churches in the area together, probably figure out a way to get you on the payroll. You can just hang out by the door. Right? Seems like a wise use of your time. Nobody doubts that God can't heal people today. In fact, we probably have a story that we could tell about it. But neither does anybody doubt that it's happening at the same level that we saw in the book of Acts, right? There seems to be a distinction there. And so, a second reason that some who are really smart and really love Jesus argue that God doesn't give out this gift today is that people often argue that the gift of healing was given as what we would call a sign gift. Meaning, gifts that were given to the apostles and to the earliest church so that their message of salvation would be authenticated. In Acts 14, we're told that miracles and signs were done to confirm the apostles' message. Later on in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says that signs and wonders are how you judge if somebody claiming to be an apostle is actually a real deal. If, I mean, if they're going to claim to speak with God's authority, then maybe they ought to do what only God can do, right? And so many people thoughtfully and humbly argue that the sign gifts ceased at some point in the early church. So what then leads other people to argue the other direction? Well, because there's not much that we can point to in the Bible that would say that those sign gifts did stop that they were only given for a brief season. I mean, there's a lot that can be inferred, but like just standing up here as somebody who's charged with teaching the Bible, inferring things out of the Bible for very long is a dangerous game to play. Like you would probably need chapter and verse for that. Another thing that those in the God still gives out these gifts camp like to point to is that, well, last time I checked, God can do whatever he wants however he wants to. Right? So, I mean, if God wants to give someone the power to heal, is he allowed to do that? Is his, are his hands tied? Anybody dumb enough to argue that? So a lot of really, really smart, Jesus-loving, Bible-loving people argue that we should never dare believe that God is done working powerfully in whatever ways he sees fit to work. So there's a divide here, right? There's some who argue that it's done, and there's some who argue that it's still active today, and there's this divide that exists between brothers and sisters in Christ. What makes this even more complicated is that there's a third category that we can talk about, and it's found in the way that Paul actually writes verse 9. Uh, in the Greek, both the words gifts and the word healing are plural, which means Paul seems to be saying here that there are multiple types of healing gift. While some Maybe the more miraculous lame man stood up and walked or blind man regained his sight. Other versions of this gift may be more along the lines of deeply understanding human medicine. Right? There are some who just, that comes naturally to, and God has raised them up in the medical field to do what they have been especially gifted to do. But, but So that, that may be another type of healing here. But also, Paul may have non-physical healing in view here, meaning that, some people in the church have been gifted to bring spiritual or emotional healing to others. You ever been around somebody who knows exactly when to make that phone call? 
exactly when to give that hug. Who knows how to say exactly what needs to be said with the level of grace and empathy necessary that it just unlocks the, next, the person they're talking to. And healing comes. And so if that's true, if Paul does have more in view here than just miraculous healings, then we have a third category to deal with. So it would be entirely possible for the sign gifts to have been phased out and for the Spirit to still be actively giving the gift of healing today. And so, so, so how in the world should we see this stuff, right? we got some who argue that they're not around. we got some who argue that they're always around. we got some who argue that maybe it's shifted a little bit. How do we see this stuff? Well, because it doesn't appear to have a thus says the Lord attached to it, we're never going to say that someone who claims to have these sign gifts are either lying or are unwelcome at our church. Okay, sounds great. Do something with it. For the glory of God, do something with it. This is not an issue to break fellowship over. But listen, because they don't seem to be normative today, neither are we ever going to prop them up either. Those of you who have been around for our, our new member class the last couple of years, the new member conversations, you probably remember me telling you that it's okay if you have a word from the Lord. Bring it to us. We're just never going to give you a microphone. Bring it to us. Bring it to our leaders, and we'll do everything we can to humbly and prayerfully uh, discern it and then pass it on to our church if we feel that God is leading us to. Yes and amen. And it's this way of looking at stuff that can now help us make sense of going on of what's going on in verse 10, which is whew, the big one. All right. Verse 10, to another, the working of miracles, to another, prophecy, to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another, various kinds of tongues, and to another, the interpretation of tongues. Okay, so Paul hits the turbo button here. Says he's just going to go ahead and list everything off, all for fun. And so he comes out of the gate swinging, though. He says, the first thing that he lists off is that the Spirit gives some the gift of miracles, which, let's be honest, sounds awesome. Anybody want that gift? <laughs> there's obviously a lot of debate over what Paul has in view here. But most point out that there's definitely a lot going on in the book of Acts that wouldn't be categorized as healing, stuff he hasn't covered yet. Like people were raised from the dead. Um, one dude was made blind rather than being healed from blindness. And then you have stories like Ananias and Sapphira. Like, how do you categorize that? And how involved was Peter? Like, what do you do? And again, this would, this would clearly be seen as one of the sign gifts, I think. And so the question is, does it still happen today? And so many see this as a gift that's no longer being given out and because the church doesn't need to authenticate its message anymore. But if you're not a cessationist, if you don't believe that this stuff has gone away, then somehow you've got to find a way for this to have a modern-day application. I'm not going to argue that it can't. God can do what he wants, but if you've got this in your back pocket, call me. We've got some work to do. got some ideas for the church. But then after miracles... Paul says that the Spirit gives some the gift of prophecy. And with that, I'd like to introduce you to character number one of what I affectionately call the tag team of spiritual misunderstanding. Um, when Paul uses the word prophecy, hear me clearly, he is not at all 
talking about prophecy the same way that we talk about the Old Testament prophets. Those men were men who uh, had received special revelation from God, from the Lord, to speak God's words with God's authority on God's behalf. All right, that's what's going on in that moment. Those words were seen as God's very own words. They carried authority and they stood all on their own because they were God's words through the mouth of a human person. And then after that, they were often written down for us and preserved as Scripture. But when the Apostle Paul uses the word prophecy, he's not talking about an inerrant messenger from the Lord. He's talking about someone who has had a special revelation of knowledge that then must be tested. That then must be tested. That's the important part. Something is brought to mind, maybe a word or a thought, and then it is spoken in human words for the benefit of the hearer, either to encourage them or to admonish them in some kind of way. But in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul tells that church to test every prophecy. John, in 1 John 4.1, tells them the exact same thing. All right? And so these are not people who stand up and speak with inerrant authority. These are people who then must be held up against the authority of the word and tested on what they said. So a lot of people, a lot of people wrongly see prophecy here as some kind of upfront authoritative speaker in the church, someone whose word is to, to be automatically trusted and received because they're speaking on behalf of God. But, and so like, it may sometimes be public. We see some examples of that play out in the New Testament, but more often than not, it looks honestly more like someone in the background pulling someone else to the side and saying, hey, listen, I was reading the Bible this morning. I think God wants you to know blank. I love you, and I want good for you, and I think God would have you hear this. And then that other person, or the leaders of the church, if it's addressed to the group, is then responsible for going and testing it against the scriptures. Just like with healing, man, I think prophecy may have had some more miraculous moments. It doesn't mean he can't still have some more miraculous moments, but I think probably God uses it in a more subtle way today. In fact, I think that's the way he seems to prefer. I'll take it a step further. I believe that I've been on the receiving end of someone exercising a prophetic gift. Um, I'll tell you a story. Several years ago, a good friend of mine who loved me dearly uh, and loved me incredibly well in, in that season of my life pulled me to the side right before I was about to make a gigantic public decision that was going to change mine and my family's life for a long time. She pulled me to the side. She said, Stephen, I, I want you to know this. And she said exactly what needed to be said for me to change my mind and not make that public announcement. Completely affected my, mine and my family's life for a couple of years because God put her in that place to say something that I desperately needed to hear that she didn't know anything about. But in that moment, in that moment, it wasn't my job to hear her as an authority. It was my job to test what she said against the, the authority that I've been given in the scriptures. It was my job to hear her love for me and then authenticate her message with the authority of the Bible. And so if you've got this gift running around, right? If you've got some folks that have this gift that always needs to be closely followed by the testing of this gift, well, then it also stands to reason that God would provide some people in the church who are especially gifted at making sense of what they're listening to, right? So after prophecy, Paul says that 
The Spirit has gifted some the ability to distinguish between spirits. Hey, sometimes people have a word from the Lord and it's going to change your life. Sometimes people have a word from the Lord and it really just sounds more like indigestion. Right? It's just the truth. Meatball sub, man. And so in God's goodness, Oh, listen, in his goodness, he equips some in the church that have a little more sense in telling the difference between these things. And so we don't go running after everything that sounds spiritual. And we don't chase down and affirm everything just because it comes to us on a whim. The church needs, hear me, needs folks with discernment, right? Churches get themselves in a lot of trouble when they don't have this. A lot of trouble. We can't slow down yet because character number two of our misunderstood tag team comes up next. Spirit gives some what Paul calls here various kinds of tongues. Who's ready for this one? <laughs> Honestly, I think this is the one that makes has been made the biggest mess of out of our tag team of misunderstanding. Um, it's also the one that we think Corinth struggled with the most because Paul is going to spend an inordinate amount of time over the next two and a half chapters dealing with this. Um, so what's Paul talking about here? Well, at the risk of disenfranchising some people who disagree with me or convinced otherwise, let me be crystal clear. Tongues is not a private prayer language, period. I love you, but it is not a private prayer language. There are four instances in the New Testament where speaking in another tongue is mentioned before you get to 1 Corinthians. Mark 16, Acts 2, Acts 10, and Acts 19. If you're writing them down and take notes, I'll tell them again. Mark 16, Acts 2, Acts 10, Acts 19. Go study these for yourself. All four of them, all four of them have to deal with publicly speaking to a group in a language that the speaker doesn't know. All four of them. And so right out of the gate, we see that it cannot be a private thing because literally the only biblical examples we have are public. It can't be a private thing. It's ridiculous that anybody would argue otherwise. Four instances of its use, and in none of those four cases is it ever mentioned that it is some kind of special holy language. But in one of those cases, it is explicitly mentioned that the language is one that the foreign audience in the crowd already knows and understands. That's the case in Acts 2, the day at Pentecost. You remember that story, right? Peter preaches the gospel. The Jews who had been scattered through the diaspora all over the Roman Empire have come back to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover together. All right, they're in town. They're still in town. Forty days later, Peter preaches the gospel, and everybody hears, we're told, in their own native tongue. Right? So allow me to give you a really quick crash course in biblical interpretation. Unless you have an incredibly good reason to ignore it, you always, always interpret what is unclear by what has been made explicitly clear. Always. And so there is zero reason at all to think that Paul has suddenly arrived at his letter to Corinth and has now taken a term that has always meant one thing in the New Testament and decided to use it in a different way. You following me here? So is it, is it as simple as speaking in other languages then? No. There's clearly a miraculous element to this. Pentecost is a testimony of that, right? God did something amazing. And, and the purpose in that moment in Acts chapter 2 was so that people would hear the message of the gospel in their own language. Even though Peter didn't know those languages, the Spirit wanted, some, the Spirit wanted to save some folks that day. And so the Spirit worked powerfully through Peter, despite Peter's insufficiencies, to do what the Spirit wanted to do. God saved some people. 
And everybody walked away from that moment <laughs> thinking, look at what God did. Rather than, hey, look what Peter did. It wasn't about making a big deal out of Peter. It was about the birth and the buildup of the church. And so that brings us back to the disconnect in Corinth, right? The examples that we see of speaking in other tongues before we get to Corinth, it was always an others-focused clarification of the gospel. It authenticated the message and left everyone present worshiping the Lord. Which is why the last thing that Paul mentions here is that the Spirit gives some the ability to interpret those tongues. You don't need an interpreter for a private prayer language. The point is to clarify for others who need to hear the gospel. It's also why later on Paul is going to argue that without the interpretation and clarity, then the gift of tongues is in the way that should be done away with. It causes harm if it's not for the purpose of clarity. And this is what we see happening in Corinth. We see these kinds of gifts are, are, when they're turned loose in an environment that's full of personal agendas and grandstanding, they just as quickly become tools of destruction rather than gifts for the body. They're in the way. So Paul's going to hammer this point over and over and over and over again for the next two and a half chapters of this letter. These gifts are not given for personal benefit. And neither do they exist to be some kind of platform or, or, or ministry for someone. Or as he says in verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually, and I love this part, as he wills. It is entirely possible Completely possible to take something that God has given you to serve others and instead use it to serve yourself. Plays out all the time in churches. Certainly was happening in Corinth. So, so what do we do with this stuff? Right? Like, like how do we avoid the same landmines that they walked right into? We can say it a different way. How can we respond to God's word this morning? If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, our response is the same as it is every single week. We repent of sin and we lean into what God has revealed about himself in the scripture. Like, can I ask the, the elephant in the room question? Like, When you walk in the door here, who are you looking to make much of? It's possible to have the right spiritually sounding answer. I mean, nobody in this room is dumb enough to say something other than God. I'm looking to serve God. It's possible to have the right spiritually sounding answer, but it's also possible to, to hide behind that answer even as you continue to functionally serve yourself. We need an honest answer, not the right one. And that reality is often clearly seen in how we handle the things that God has made us good at. That reality is clearly seen, most often seen, I think, in how we handle the things that God has made us good at. Like, who are you looking to make much of? Well, do you think that your spiritual gifts are the most amazing gifts ever and it makes you more special than everybody else in the room? Or you think that your spiritual gifts aren't all that impressive at all and maybe we should stop talking about them, please? 
The, answer, the question is still the same. Are, are you using those God-given gifts for the common good of the church? Listen, it's the reason he gave them to you. Anything other than that is a misuse of them. What does it look like to take the next step of others-focused service through those gifts? Unfortunately, I can't answer that for you. I, I, I wish I could, but like, I, I do know that our church would be strengthened by whatever that answer is. Whatever that answer is for that next step for you of applying those gifts in a way that builds up the body and, 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 and does common good to the church, like whatever that answer is, like our church would never be the same because of what your answer is. You think God would use some things around here? I think he would. So I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. It's a moment for you to do business with Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, listen, you can respond to God's word too. And you, you do that by meeting Jesus. That's, that's our aim. Like All this talk about spiritual gifts this morning, listen, we're in danger right now of leading you to believe that the greatest thing that God can give you is this special ability. Baloney. The Bible teaches that all people, the Bible teaches that all people by default are separated relationally from God because of our sin and that we are owed the righteous and fair punishment for that sin. But the Bible, listen, also teaches that God is rich in mercy and that he loves you with a great love, that even when you were dead in your trespasses and sin, that the free gift of God is the grace of Jesus. He sent his son, Jesus put on flesh and dwelled among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. And he died on the cross as an innocent substitute to make full and final payment for your sin. He, listen, he wants to give you himself. And now that he is risen victoriously from the dead, there's a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. He is the conquering king. And he calls you to respond to him in repentance and in faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that this very morning. Will he, will he give you some special spiritual gift? Yeah, but man, he's a lot better than the gift. We'd rather you have him. So I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. I'll be down front if you want somebody to talk to about it. But whoever you are and however God is calling you to respond this morning, let's respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for complicated chapters in Corinthians. God, we know that there's more here. We know that there's more to discuss. But we also trust that you're better than all these things. And so... God, would you show us yourself? Where we have used the things that you have given us in inappropriate ways, would you call us to repentance? Where we have used them to serve ourselves, would you call us to repentance? Where we have avoided using them because, well, we see this other one over here in the corner and they seem a lot better and cooler than us. Call us to repentance. God, would you bring health to this church through the gifts that you have given?
in whatever capacity that looks like. Maybe it's the miraculous ones. Maybe it's just the normal ones that nobody's impressed with. But either way, you're the good giver. God, for those here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to know? We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.